All right, good morning. Um, so as we start our sermon series on the Minor Prophets, I want to kick it off today by letting you know that this is going to be a weird sermon, uh, which is, that's, that's always what you want to hear, right? Right at the beginning? I don't mean it's weird and that we're going to talk about weird stuff. I mean, it's weird and that it's going to be going to be atypical for us at BC, right? Normally, our, our practice as a church is to go kind of, uh, you know, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. And so normally there's a specific passage of scripture that we're working through on a Sunday morning so that we can learn more together about, about who Jesus is and what he's done for us uh, from his word and, and, and what we should do about that today is kind of more of a, a setup for the series that's coming. So we're going to kind of take a week to give kind of an introduction to the minor prophets. And so like, we're going to go through a lot of the Bible today, but we're not going to have a specific passage that we're going to walk through. Instead, we're going to start that next week as we're going to go through Hosea 1 through 3. And if you haven't seen the announcement, uh, parents next week, uh, and then the week after as we go through Hosea 1 through 3, and then 4, th- four and 5, uh, Hosea uses some words and talks about some concepts that, uh, that are a little, a little, a little racy, a little, a little non-PG-13, and so uh, we're going to have Kids Connect those weeks, and uh, for parents that have older kids in here or have younger kids in here with you, you might want to read ahead so that you know what's going to come up so that you can be prepared to answer the questions your kids are going to have afterwards. Or, uh, you know, Daniel's preaching four and five. You could just send your kids to him, and he'll, he'll answer all the questions. Um, but today, we're, we're talking about uh, what, what the minor prophets are and what we need to know before we, before we get into them. Um, and so there's, there's four questions that I, that I want to answer this morning. It's my goal to answer these questions for you, that if, like, if you leave here and you know these four things, then, then this was a win. And so the first one is, is why the minor prophets? Why are we going to take the time as a church to, to preach through uh, the minor prophets? Number two is what are the minor prophets? Number three is why are we going to do all 12? And then Number four is what are we going to see as we go through them together? So that's, that's what we're after this morning, to kind of get this information uh, so that we can be prepared for where we're going uh, on this series uh, as a church. And so, you know, Jen talked about how we, we just moved. Um, one of the, the great things about our, our old house uh, was that kind of most things in our home had a place. Whereas right now, most things in our home have a box that they're in. Uh, and so there, there's so many things that like, they, they don't, it just doesn't have a place yet. And so, for example, this week and you know, other weeks as I've been working on sermons, I've been like, hey, I need, I need this book. I need C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, or I need uh, you know, Paul House's Old Testament Theology, or I need this book by this author. And at our old house, I would just go to the shelf that that's book, that book's on. You know, I know exactly where it is. Like, I can picture it. Like, it's, it's, it's right there. Uh, but in our current house... It's in a box that says books, Christian living. Is this the Christian living book that has Lewis's books in it or does it have somebody else's books? Or, or you know, uh, the Paul House book was in Old Testament box number two. So like it, none, none of the things have a place. And so what, what I'm trying to do today is as we're going through the minor prophets, like this, this sermon, the goal of today is to give us a place to put the minor prophets in our mind, to know like this is, this is who they are. This is the environment that they're speaking in. These are the things that they're talking about. So we have, have categories, so we have hooks, so we have a shelf to put the minor prophets on in our mind. So that's 
what we're after. So question one, why the minor prophets? Why are we going through the minor prophets? And honestly, this is something that I've been asking myself with much more frequency as this sermon series gets closer, right? It was a good idea a few months ago, but now that we're actually going to have to go through these complicated books, it's, it's not, not as fun. And so the reason why we do this is because we're not that familiar with the minor prophets, right? If, if I was to pass around pieces of paper to you and say, write down the 12 minor prophets, I'm not sure how many of us would be able to do it, right? Unless at some point in your life you, you memorized a song or just intentionally committed the order of the Old Testament books to memory, you might not know the 12 minor prophets. And maybe, maybe some people would know them, but, but not be able to put them in the right order. Um, in fact, I once had a, a PhD seminar with like a, a well-known New Testament professor that, you know, encouraged the class to turn to, I think it, I think it was Habakkuk. Uh, but it was one of the minor prophets and he said, like, just, just flip around back there till you find it. That's what I do. Right? And so he's, he's saying, like, I, I don't know exactly where they are. And he might have just been, you know, trying to be folksy. But uh, the, the point stands. Like, we just, we just don't know. And so look at this. There's this graphic from, from Crossway. So Crossway surveyed Bible readers. So this isn't random people. This isn't unchurched people. These are people that actually read their Bibles. And they ask two questions. What section of the Bible do you read most often? And which do you find hardest to understand? And so the first one, blue, read most often. Minor prophets are, are a, a close second for least read section of the Bible. They barely get beat out by Joshua through Esther. But they, they aren't read very often. But then when you look at hardest to understand in red, you know, the, the prophets are like four times more answered. So people, when they're asked, which, which section of the Bible is the most difficult to understand? They say the prophets four times more than any other section. And, and this actually includes Isaiah through Malachi. I think if it was narrowed down to the minor prophets, like these numbers would be even greater. So they're, they're four times higher than anything else to understand. They're, they're read second least often. And so uh, there's also a, a survey of a, a Bible website. The, the top 10 least read books, six of them are minor prophets. The, the least read book overall is Obadiah. Obadiah is like a page. Right? We should all just go home and read that real quick so we can check it off the list. Right? That, that shouldn't be the least read book. It's the easiest book to read. So there's some of the, the least read, least understood parts of the Bible. We, we want to grow and change. And so we need to understand these books. And it's my hope that right, if, if Crossway ever calls us on the phone and, and we get this survey question, that we can kind of skew the numbers more in the favor of the minor prophets. Right? The, the minor prophets are still probably going to be hard to read, hard to understand. But maybe we can bring closer to like two times harder instead of like four times harder. And so uh, another reason, like in addition to the fact that people say it's the least read and, and least understood, and we want to change that, minor prophets are also quoted 58 times in the New Testament. To put that in perspective, that, that's more often than Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel combined. So they're quoted all over the place, and people are saying like, I don't understand them, and I don't read them. Well, that means that we don't understand a lot of the quotes that happen in the New Testament. And so we want to be able to understand them. And so that's why we're going to go through the minor prophets. 
But what about question number two? What are the minor prophets? Or, or perhaps a better question is, is who are the minor prophets? So here's, here's the 12 guys. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So if we want to know who these prophets are, these, these 12 minor prophets, uh, we need to understand how they fit into the Old Testament storyline. So I want to give you a brief survey of the Old Testament story. But before I do that, like they're, they're minor prophets because of the length of the books. Right? The major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're, they're longer. And so these 12 guys are the minor prophets because their books are smaller. But... The, the story that they're, they're speaking into, right, it starts with, with Genesis, right? So way back in Genesis, God made everything. It was very good. He put Adam and Eve in the garden. He gave them one rule to follow. Uh, they, they blew it. Uh, you know, he said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So before that point, though, before the fall, though, Adam and Eve, they're, they're in God's place, they're, they're under God's rule, and they are his people. So God's people are in God's place, and they're under God's rule. That is a, a, a picture of what's happening in the garden. But Adam and Eve, they decide they don't want to follow God. They, they don't trust him. They, they reject his rule over him. They, they rebel against him. And because God is just, sin has to be punished. So he, he kicks them out of the garden. He pours out judgment. God, a curse enters the world. And so they're, they're no longer God's people. They're no longer in God's place. And they're no longer submitting to God's rule. But there's, there's good news that comes on that day too, right? In Genesis 3.15, God pours out judgment on the serpent. And this is what he says. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So in this verse, as God is pouring out judgment because of Adam and Eve's sin, there, there's a bit of good news. The part of the curse is that there's going to be this, this ongoing conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between the people of God and those who aren't the people of God. And, and one of the seed of the woman, one of Eve's offspring, is going to, to put an end to this curse, to overturn the curse. He's going to bruise the head of the serpent, but he'll be wounded in the process. His heel will be bruised. So God is pouring out judgment because of sin, but there's a promise too. One day, one of Eve's descendants is going to come and overturn the curse of the fall. And what we see, I mean, moving on in Genesis, in the Old Testament, is God's people putting their hope in that promise. So in Genesis uh, 4.1, right, God said that there would be difficulty in bringing children into the world. But in Genesis 4.1, says that Adam knew his wife. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Eve is recognizing that that God is delivering on that promise, right? He's, he's enabling part of the curse to be overcome. But we know the story. Cain kills Abel, and they're left childless again. Genesis 4.25, we read, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Notice that she uses the word offspring there. Like she's referring specifically to that promise God made in Genesis 3.15. It's like she's saying, maybe this one is the one. 
And that's exactly what we see when we get to, when, to Noah's birth. Genesis 5, 28 and 29 says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. They're, they're saying, maybe, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the offspring. Maybe this is the descendant who's going to come and overturn the curse of the fall. Noah obeyed God. Right? He built the ark. He saved his family through the flood. But, but after the flood... Uh, he fails too. And things continue to get worse and worse until we get to Genesis 11, which is when like all the people are gathered together at Babel. God said that they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth, but instead they're, they're gathered together, rebelling against him. They're saying they want to make their name great. They want to build a tower that's going to reach to the heavens. They want to get to God's place. So God comes down, he confuses their language, and he forces them to scatter across the face of the earth. But it's in Genesis 12 that things get interesting. God finds this guy named Abram. And he says this. He says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So at Babel, these people were gathered together, rebelling against God, saying they want to make their name great. But then God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make your name great. God is going to bless him. He's going to give him land. He's going to give descendants. He's going to give him favor with people. He's going to help him in this, this cosmic conflict that exists between the people of God and those who aren't the people of God. It's, it's through Abraham's family, through his lineage, that God is going to overturn the curse of the fall. His promise to Abram is that God's people will once again be in God's place and under God's rule. And so God's promise passes from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, and from Jacob to Judah. And we're left in Genesis 49 waiting for this, this king who's promised to come in the line of Judah, who's going to reign over God's people. God's people, though, end up slaves in Egypt before he redeems them. He brings them out of slavery. He brings them into the land that he has for them. They're once again God's people. They're once again in God's place, but they're not yet under God's rule. Moses dies, and Joshua leads them uh, until he dies, and then things get pretty crazy if you read the book of Judges. Right? They're, they're kind of all over the place. And there's this recurring refrain throughout the book of Judges that says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. At that time, there was no king in Israel. So the people, they demand a king. They reject God over them as king. Instead, they want a king like all the other nations. So what they get is Saul, who is pretty much a failure. He's a bad king who, who does a bad job, who gets removed from his position. And then God appoints a king who's after his own heart. A king from the tribe of Judah, which they should have expected, which was promised. A uh, king through whom his promises could come to pass. That's King David. And in 2 Samuel 7, we see God's promise passed on to him. This is what it says. 2 Samuel 1, 7, 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David is saying, like, God has given me peace from all my enemies. I've got this nice house, but the ark is in this, this tent. So David wants to build a temple. He wants to build a house for God. And so Nathan at first says, yeah, like, go do it. That sounds like a great idea. 
But, verse 4, that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the peoples of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed by no one. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people of Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall Shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So David is saying, like, I want, I want to make a house for you, God. God comes back through Nathan and says, no, that's not what's going to happen. Instead, God is going to build David a house. God is going to make David's people his people. God is going to establish David's throne forever through his sons, through his descendants. He's, he's bringing along these promises that he made to Abraham, and they're going to come through David's family. So David's son Solomon takes the throne after him when he dies. When he lies down with his fathers, God establishes the throne of Solomon. Solomon asks for wisdom. He starts out really well. He does a lot of great things. He builds a temple for God, just like Nathan said he would. But then Solomon's heart gets pulled away. He starts to worship idols. He, he marries a bunch of wives, and, and his heart is pulled away. And so God tells him that he's going to pour out judgment on the people. Not on Solomon for the sake of David, but after Solomon's reign, God is going to divide the kingdom. And so Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes over after him. And the kingdom of Israel is split into two kingdoms. There's the, the northern kingdom that has ten tribes and the southern kingdom of Judah, which has two tribes. And things just go from bad to worse at that point until the northern kingdom of Israel is, is wiped out altogether. And the southern kingdom is carried off into exile. And it's in that environment, like we're at, we're at that point of the story that the minor prophets start speaking. And so look at this, this chart we have. So this is, this is where we see the split in the kingdom. So you've got Israel at the top, and three of the minor prophets are going to be speaking to them. Amos, or Jonah, Amos, and Hosea. They're, they're in that northern kingdom. They're, they're prophesying relates to them. And then on the bottom line, we've got, got Judah. It lasts longer until they go into exile. And so Obadiah, Joel, and Micah are speaking before the exile, uh, along with Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. And then after the exile, you've got Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. And so they are entering into, into this part of the story. Uh, just before the northern kingdom falls apart, uh, just before uh, the southern kingdom is carried off in exile, and then three of them kind of come in at the end to offer some hope after the exile. 
So this is, this is what's, what's taking place. You've got the northern kingdom, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, prophesying to Judah before the exile, after it falls. So God is speaking through these prophets, these, these 12 minor prophets, at a time when the nation has broken its covenant with God. God has gave them these promises. He said he's going to be with them. They, they continually just rebel against him. They continue to fall into sin. God continues to promise judgment. And so this is what, what they're doing. Through these prophets, he's going to call out their sin. He's going to announce judgment. And then at the very end, after judgment has fallen, he's going to offer them some, some hope, some redemption. That, that once again, someday, they're going to be God's people. They're going to be in God's place. They're going to be under God's rule. So that's, that's who the minor prophets are. That's the environment they're speaking into. So question three is, why are we going through all 12 at once? Right? Why, not, why not pace ourselves? Why not spread it out? Why not sprinkle one of these little books in here or there? So the reason why we're going through all the minor prophets together is that the minor prophets are also called the twelve. Or, or the book of the 12, which you'll see on the wonderful graphic that Kelsey Morrison made for us. The reason why they're called that is because they were, they were circulated, they were, they were transmitted as, as one book, one, one scroll. Um, in fact, we saw this as we went through Acts. In Acts 7.42, we read this. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? So Stephen, in his speech, is quoting Amos, and he quotes Amos from the book of the prophets. And so uh, the 12 minor prophets, they were seen as, as a unit, not these 12 individual books by individual guys, but, but this, this one scroll. Uh, and in fact, when you keep them together, that they're about the same size as the major prophets, as Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Um, and so uh, historically, they're consistently found together and they're found in the same order. And so we should study them together and not in isolation from one another. In fact, uh, really, this is kind of how we should read the Bible, uh, but on a smaller scale, right? So the Bible is 66 books but it's, but it's one book. It's, it's written by a lot of different authors, but it's, but it's telling the same story. In the same way, the Minor Prophets are 12 individual books that, that make up one book, the, the book of the 12. So there's separate authors, but they're, 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 they're speaking into the same thing. Their, their books fit together. As we go through it, we're going to see that they have a, a structure that's coherent, that makes sense. We're going to see that books often end with specific words and phrases that the next one begins with. There's some intentionality here behind how these books were fit together. And so that's why we're going to go through them together. So question four then is what are we going to see as we go through these books? So they have a unified structure. Uh, they're, they're part of one book, and we're going to see those close relationships between the ends of some books and the beginning of the next books. But overall, there's, there's a three-part structure that unfolds as we go through these. So the first six minor prophets, Hosea through Micah, we're going to see them address covenant-breaking sin. That's the main thing those prophets are doing. They're, they're calling out sin in the people, some in the northern kingdom and some in the southern kingdom. And the next three, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, they're going to address the immediate coming judgment on Israel because of their sin. 
And then the last three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they're going to come in and they're going to offer a message of hope. They're going to announce that redemption and restoration is still going to happen. Even though God's people have been unfaithful, even though they've broken the covenant, even though judgment has fallen, he is still their God. They are still his people. He's going to restore them. They will once again be in his place and under his rule as his people. Obviously, there's going to be some overlap between those. Right? Even though Hosea is primarily addressing sin, he's still going to announce judgment. He's still going to offer some hope as we go through it, which is, which is good, right? Because if we just had six books of just like confrontation of sin without any hope, like that would get pretty depressing for us as we're going through it. And so there's going to be some overlap. But this is the overall message of the minor prophets. There's this confrontation of sin, the reality of judgment, and then the promise of redemption and restoration, even though they, they break the covenant, even though God has, has judged them, even though he poured out punishment, even though they're carried off into exile, they're, they're outside the land, it ends with hopeful good news. God's people are once again going to be his people. And, and, and I think that the minor prophets are going to have good news for us as we go through them. Right? They're going to address to us the, the, the gravity of sin. They're going to they're point out that we should take it seriously that it shouldn't be something that we make light of. It shouldn't be something we overlook, that, that holiness matters for God's people. They're also going to point forward to a salvation that we get to look back on, right? So much of, of the hope that's promised in the minor prophets are things that we get to walk in and experience and participate in every day as God's people, right? We live in the hope that they look forward to. We're also still looking forward to some of the things that they were, and so we're going to be reminded of, of so many of God's promises that we're still waiting to be fulfilled. The reality of the minor prophets, like what they're going to show us again and again and again, is that our God is a God who keeps his promises. Both the, the good ones and the bad ones. Right? His, his warnings are real warnings that we should take seriously. Uh, but also his messages of hope, his messages of grace, his, his covenant faithfulness is something that, that cannot and will not change. Right? As you go through the storyline of the Old Testament, what you see again and again and again is that God does exactly what he says he's going to do. And God's people pretty much do the opposite of what he tells them to do. Right? All those those books, that, 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 that story we went through where, where God gives promises to his people and his people fail. It happens again and again and again. It happens in Genesis. It happens, you know, but before they get into the land. It happens once they get into the land. It happens when they're in exile. It happens when they get back into the land. God's people continually fall short of what he wants for them in the same way that we do. But what we get to see in the minor prophets is that even though that's who they are, even though they're broken, even though they fall short, even though they don't live up to his standard, he remains faithful to them. He keeps his promises to us, even when we don't keep our promises to him. And the good news for us in Jesus is that we know it's not based on our ability to keep the covenant. Right? It's not based on our ability to measure up to his standard for us. He sent Jesus to, to meet the standard for us. Because he knows that we can't meet that standard. And because he sent Jesus to do that in our place, that cycle was broken. Right? We, don't, we don't see that again. Because once and for all, he put away sin. 
Once and for all, he measured up in our behalf. God keeps his promises to us because all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And so the reason why the minor prophets are a message of hope is because they point forward to the Christ who's coming. And the reason why it's a hopeful message for us is because we look back on the reality that he has come. That he did exactly what God said he was going to do. That he stood in our place. He bore our punishment. He redeemed us. He, he brought us out of our slavery to sin. And he established a new covenant. One that we can keep. Not because of who we are. But because of who he is and what he's done for us. And so I hope that as we go through the minor prophets together. Not just that we'll understand them more. Not just that we'll read them more but that, that we'll know and love and worship Jesus more because of them. That we will be reminded more of who he is and what he's done for us as we go through these books together, as we see uh, reminders of our own brokenness. And again and again, we see the faithfulness of God in spite of that. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are our just and that you do take sin seriously and that your word reminds us of that again and again and again. And so we pray that as we go through the minor prophets together as a church, that you would send your spirit to do that through the prophets that our sin would be confronted, even though it's, it's not the same as Israel's sin, that, that, that we would see how seriously you take it and we would recognize the gravity of our own sin and that it would ignite in us a, a passion to pursue holiness together. I pray that as we are confronted with, with the reality of, of judgment coming because of sin, that it would remind us that, that you are a God who judges sin. And that while Jesus has, has paid for our sin, that there are lots of people in our, in our community, in, in our lives, in our, in our world, who, who have not had their sin covered by him and his blood. So we pray that you would cause us, through the minor prophets, to take judgment more seriously. And we pray that as we're reminded both of the promises you've already kept and the ones that you're in the process of keeping, that the minor prophets would fill us with hope. And the good news that you are a God who keeps your promises. So we pray that as we, as we go through them together, that you would help us, yes, to, to read them and yes, to understand them. But more to, to grow Jesus in our affection for you and for who you are and what you've done for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.